0: All right, I want you to stand with me. We're going to read the Word from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. So we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and what I'm going to do, I'm going to jump from where we are in Mark to chapter 11, and then when we get to this chapter, I won't be covering it in the, uh, in the message, When we uh, probably in the next few weeks. So um, the title of the message is Right Into My Heart. And in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, we have the Palm Sunday um, testimony, you see it in each of the four Gospels, and um, it tells us, now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it, and if anyone says to you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it there. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street. And they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus has commanded. So they let them go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road. And others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all the things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve and Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open up our hearts. Lord, you came in on a donkey. You came in in peace. You came, Lord, as the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world and the sins of our lives. And Father, I pray today, let every soul that's here in this building open up their hearts and just invite you to come riding in and to be their Lord, their Savior of their life. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And you can all be seated so he came to Jerusalem, we call it Palm Sunday, but it could be Palm Monday. <laughs> you get into uh, some of the chronology of what is going on. We call it his triumphant entry. What I'd like to look at this morning, just some things that happened on that Sunday and then followed the next day, okay, or, or, or two. So the, the first thing I want to share with you, he came in humility. And um, when, when we look again at the text and, you know, he told the apostles to go and um, to find this colt, okay, little, little, little baby donkey, okay, small, young, teenage donkey. And uh, he would actually, they would bring the donkey and the donkey's mother. Why was the mother brought with the donkey? The donkey That's right, right? What did little kids do? They follow mama, Right. So um, he tells him to do that, and so w- when he comes in, the people uh, they lay their clothes down on the road. Um, they've heard about him. They've heard about his miracles, and they take up palm branches and they are they are shouting, right? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why palm branches? Well, there's a, there's a, a, a clear if in the book of Leviticus. If you go to the book, you go to the book of Leviticus. Chapter 23, verse 40 through 43, God instructs the Jewish people that they were to make uh, they were to make little these little tabernacles these little um, houses right that would essentially commemorate their wandering through the wilderness and their liberation okay from Egypt. So they would make uh, these these tabernacles and they would make them okay out of palm branches. So you go into an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood during Sukkoth okay Sukkoth. And what you will see, and this is a, a picture of, of modern. That's that's actually a tabernacle that's made out of palm branches, and they would live in those for for seven days. Okay, the uh, Sukkot uh, feast of Tabernacles. I, I live right outside of a, a, a Jewish neighborhood in Closter, and they usually set up the tabernacle right in this one farm area, and there they, you know, they celebrate the feast of tabernacles for seven days. Where else in Scripture do you see them waving palm branches? Anyone? Well, when he entered into Jerusalem, but in the Book of Revelation, chapter seven, right? This is a picture of heaven, and we may be there, (laughs) right? Waving the palm branches and praising the Lord. Now he comes on a on a donkey. Why? Why why did he come on a donkey? Why not on a stallion? Why not on a beautiful white stallion? Like you see in Revelation 19. There's two reasons. One was to fulfill Scripture. He came to fulfill... he, He fulfilled... I mean, there were over 365 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus, right, that spoke about Jesus that he fulfilled. They were written hundreds and thousands of years before he ever came, and he fills them exactly as he did this one. So he, he came to fulfill Scripture. So Zechariah 9, verse 9, this is written about 600 years before Jesus. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. The Messiah king. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt and the fowl of a donkey. And so Matthew, when Matthew is writing about the, uh, Jesus entering in, triumphal entry, he, he quotes that passage in Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, the colt, the fowl of a donkey. So he came to fulfill Scripture. He also came on a donkey because he came in humility. He came in gentleness. In, in Philippians chapter 2, and it's a very important passage, it's, it, it, we call it kenosis. It's important to understand that if you're going to understand Jesus. Because Jesus was God, but yet Jesus died on a cross. And how do you reconcile, right? You reconcile his humanity and his divinity. I want to show you in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That's kenosis. In fact, the word could be he emptied himself or he put off. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Then watch the second part of the passage, verse 9 through 11. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow uh, of, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of, under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he 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 essentially he put off i want to give you i want to give you an example i had a my my, my daughter sent me a great video of me playing with my son when he was three years old Frankie. And we were playing in the pool, and he was pouring water on my head, and I ended up pouring a big bucket on his head, and made him really mad. And then he went crazy, pouring more water on my head. We was rough, rough household good relationship, a father and a son. It's important that you bond with your son. I wrestled. I've been wrestled with my daughters until they started screaming at me, and wouldn't let me wrestle with them anymore. But I wrestled with my, I with my son. I mean, still, when he was up here a couple weeks ago, I mean, I was like doing some wrestling, grappling with him. But when he was three years old, four, five, six, seven. I could have made him tap out anytime. any time, any—I mean, any moment. But I put off my power and my strength, and I would let him compete with me. Jesus put off his power and It was always there, folks. I—I I, I always had it, but I—I I ended up putting it off. I was just share there's some of you guys here, some of you women here, you train jujitsu. One day I was rolling with my son. And he put me in a triangle. This is where his legs are wrapped around me. And if he squeezes, he's going to make me pass out. But what I did was, I, I, he was like 17, and I lifted him up over my head. <laughs> and the, the two senseis, the two teachers, were screaming at me. They thought I was going to body slam him. And um, I said, I've been holding him over my head since he was born. And they all started but they yell, please put him down gently. And um, I can't do that with him anymore. now he puts those legs around me. Man, I'm out cold. But um, you put off your strength, your power, to wrestle with your son. Jesus put off his strength and power and chose not to use it for a time. See, he, he came in humility. He came as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. If, if you study Tanakh, you study the Old Testament... You see this theme that goes on right from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, through the entire Tanakh, right to Malachi, is that God would provide a lamb. The, the, the lamb of Abel that was accepted over Cain, the lamb of, of Noah, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Passover lamb of the book of Exodus... All the sacrificial lambs of of, of Leviticus, the burnt offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the fellowship offering, all of those sacrifices, he came to fulfill the prophecies that he came as a lamb. He came humbly. He came gently. You want to meet him. You want to meet him on a donkey. You want to meet him as a lamb. The next time he comes, he will come as a lion. He, He will come... In wrath, he will come to conquer. He will come to destroy his enemies. The first time he came, he came on a donkey. The second time he comes, Revelation chapter 19, he will come on a white stallion and he will annihilate his enemies. You want to meet him as a lamb, not as a lion. You want to meet him on a donkey, not on a stallion. The great, the great paradox of Jesus is that he is both the lion and the lamb. The lamb that would be sacrificed and suffer for us. Isn't that an incredible picture? Incredible portrait. But that is a great, a, a great paradox. He's fully man but fully God. He's, he's, he's the lamb of God but he's the lion of Judah. He comes to us on a donkey and offers to us peace. He will come on a stallion and offer judgment. He comes in humility and he comes in power. And the people, again, shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And what is that? They're quoting from Psalm 118, verse 25, 26, when they were shouting those words. So, uh, 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 key... He comes to us in humility, in the time we're in, folks, I don't know how much more time in this current duration, you see things going on in the world, I don't know how much more time we will have to receive Him in His humility, in His gentleness, as the Lamb of God. How much time that we can invite Him to ride into our hearts on a donkey in peace. Because the next time he comes, he will come on a stallion with wrath. Second, he came in tears. So it tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, he, he is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Hebrews 5, 7 says, Who in the days of his flesh when He had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Strong, passionate cries, vehement tears. How many times did Jesus cry in the Gospels? The the one verse that most of us would know in John chapter 11, at the tomb of Lazarus, right? it says, the shortest verse in the Bible, two words, Jesus wept. I won't get into why I believe he wept. Maybe some of you have heard me share that. I've shared their funerals through the years. Um, He also, I believe, wept in Gethsemane. Though it doesn't specifically say that he wept. It says, uh, he began to be so sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. So I just look at that, and there had to be tears there. And the third time is he, he wept over Jerusalem. So in, in Luke 19 41 through 44, now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. And saying, If you had known even you, especially in this, uh, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, in other words, You're not seeing me. I'm here to save you. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, enclose you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. What is Jesus here foreseeing? Forty years later, 37 years to be exact, The Romans would enter into Jerusalem and they would level the entire city. They would destroy the temple, 70 A.D., Titus and the Roman legions. A million Jews were murdered. A million. A hundred thousand were taken into slavery and the rest were were dispersed throughout the world where they had been until the prophecy was fulfilled that in 1947 they would return to Jerusalem. So I just want to see what he's seeing here. He's seeing... The horror, the death of men and women and children. Have you looked at what's happening in the Ukraine? And you see the buildings blown apart. And you see bodies laying in the streets. Men, women, little children. You see people fleeing from their homes, fleeing from their homeland, fleeing from their loved ones. Women being separated from their men who are going into battle. Children being separated from their fathers who are going into battle. So Jesus, Jesus is seeing this, and this is causing him to grieve. Look look a comparative passage, Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 through 39. He prays and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see Me no more till you say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. He is saying here, I would have gathered you like like a mother hen who puts her, her wings over her children and protects them, provides for them, keeps them safe. Folks, that's the heart of God towards a person who is resisting Him, who is rejecting Him who is rebelling against Him, who wants nothing to do with Him. He, he grieves over that person's life. He wants to save them from damnation. He wants to save them from hell. Because He can foresee what is going to happen in the future. Listen, this is a, a wonderful poem. It's one little excerpt. It says, And then He took me to the day the people hailed their King while Jesus enters to their cheers. The children rung and sing... But when he saw Jerusalem stretched out before his eyes, his soul was moved with grief for them. It moved his heart to cry. Oh, as I read those solemn words, I feel that they are sweet, for in them I behold his love, so perfect and complete. He grieves over the sinner who refuses to repent and turn to him. He grieves over that person who resists him and rebels against him and rejects him. You get again a picture of of the heart of God here. In, In Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, it says, Say to them as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? How much does God want to see a sinner saved? How much? Let me show you. Let me show you what, what the Word of God says. That much. That, that He essentially, that He would put off His divine glory, take on a human body. He, he would take off His royal robe for swaddling clothes. Take off His eternal throne for a manger. How much does he want to save people from hell? That much. How much does he want to save people from hell? That much. To allow men to scourge him. How much does he want to save a person from damnation? That much. That he would be torn and ripped. This is before the cross and be bleeding, half dead. How much does he want to save a, a sinner from eternal damnation? That much. That he would carry his cross to Calvary. How much does he want to save a person from hellfire? That much. That much. That it would take two nails into his hands and one nail into his feet. How much does God want to save humanity? That much. That much. That he would cry out from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For on the cross, he experienced hell. Hell is total separation from God, from the Father. And he experienced that separation, that hell on the cross, when he cried out those words. How much does he want to save, to save that much? How much? How much? How much? That much. That much. That is why he weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem because he knew that they would reject him, the majority of them. There were always some who believed. There were were many Jews who believed in the first century. All the original followers were Jews, but he knew that they would reject him when he came to save them. And he knew what would happen to them in the future. So he weeps. He weeps over those who reject such a great salvation. You have people in your life that you would like to be saved. You know what it is to be saved. You know, you know the joy of salvation. Look, in, in this life it's not always easy, right? It's not always easy. He never promised us that. He said you'd have tribulation. But, but he said, yet in the middle of the tribulation you'll have peace. So we know, we know that we're saved. We know that we have peace with God. We know that we have been covered by the blood and we have been forgiven and we have been redeemed. And we know that when we die, we're going to go to be with Him forever. But we got people in our lives that we deeply love who resist Him, who who reject Him, someone who outwardly rebel against Him. And where is He with that? They may make us angry. He grieves. He grieves. He weeps because he wants to see them come and be saved. So he he comes with tears. He comes with humility. Third, he, he came in fury. The word, the word fury is, is, is a, a violent energy. So in Mark 11, 12-13, then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he's just furious. (laughs) And he's furious, essentially. Who ran the temple in Jesus' day? Sadducees, not the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the the religious liberals. They were the elites. They were the rich. And they controlled the temple. When I say they were liberals, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels. And they were all about money. They were all about money. And the temple was a business to them wasn't a house of prayer. wasn't a house of worship. It, it was a place for them to make money off of people. So when people were coming and the temple was meant to be a place to commune with God, to get right with God, they used it to be rich. So in the temple... Passover time, people would come from all over the world, Jewish people come all over the world, some Gentiles, and they would come and they would have to pay the temple tax. The temple tax was half a shekel. But being that these people were out throughout the Roman world, they didn't have the the temple shekel. The temple shekel, that's a a picture there on the left of a temple shekel, and that's a a picture on the right of, of a Roman shekel. So notice that the Jews, you couldn't have a picture of a godless uh, emperor right on a coin and be offering in the house of God, so they had to come in and they had to exchange. So the people would come and they would have their Roman shekels from all throughout um, the Roman Empire, and they would come into the temple and they needed the temple shekel. So let's say the temple shekel was worth 50 bucks. But um, the Sadducees had set it up with the money changers where they would then charge you 250 bucks. So you would pay 250 Roman shekels to get a $50 shekel. How hard, you know, would that be on you, right? You're dealing with inflation right now? How hard? And most of these people were poor. So Jesus goes in in his fury, and this is, I love, I love this part. He starts flipping over the tables. In his fury, he turned. Right, against the money changers because they had turned his house of worship into a bank, into Wall Street. And then he makes a a court of whips because another one of their shady businesses was, so you, you had to come and you had to sacrifice a lamb. And some of the people couldn't afford a lamb, they would offer up turtle doves. But when they came in, the, the priests would inspect the lambs that you were bringing. So again, you're, you're out and you let's say you buy a lamb down from uh, you know, Joe's you know, you know, sheep pen and you pay 50 bucks for it. Right? It's outside of Jerusalem. Maybe it's in Bethany or Bethpage. And, and so now they come in with that lamb, but the priests would inspect the lamb and the lamb had to be without blemish. So the priests, what they did is they found every lamb had a blemish. So instead of paying 50 bucks for the lamb, they would charge you 250 bucks. And they would just, again, they would, they, would, they would make money. They were extorting money from the people. And the temple was a business. Have you ever seen that in Christianity? I don't think we've ever seen that in Christianity. Have you? You ever hear us asking for money here? The day I have to stand before you and beg for money is the day I'm ready to resign and go do something else. I think that people should be faithful to God. I believe in tithing. I believe in being led by the Spirit and offering, you know, making offerings. God, God, God calls us to that. That's the covenant, that's, that's what, you know, the, what Jesus has called us to. But I, I do not believe the church was ever meant to be a place of business. <laughs> You know, just it's it, it, you look at these guys on television. It's just a con, it's a con. They have turned they have turned the house of God, right? In, again, into a bank. In Mark eleven thirteen, again he said to them, "My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves." So he's just he's just in his fury here. I wonder if he came back today. How different it would be if he went to most churches, what would happen? I think there would be some uh, I don't know, there would be some things being turned over. I think he'd be driving out some people. The fourth is, he came in kindness. So it just is kind of this passage in Mark 11:14, "The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So here it is the picture. He's furious. <laughs> you know what he'? He's got a human body. So you ever get furious? The adrenaline is going, right? You know, I mean, you get—you got the—the intensity is there. You're in fighting mode. And then, like, right in the midst of it, the blind and the lame, and he stops. And he has compassion. He has compassion. He hates religious hypocrisy. Understand that—that's—he hates religious hypocrisy. And let me tell you something. There are a whole lot more pressure on me standing here before you than most of you. It's the people in leadership where you see the greatest hypocrisy in the church. That's always been the case for 2,000 years. So he, 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 he hates religious hypocrisy and he's furious, but then here are the broken. Here are the lame. Here are the blind. They're hurting people. And he just stops and his whole disposition changes and you see that you see that throughout the gospel, he, jesus is in conflict throughout the gospels he's in conflict with the pharisees sadducees and scribes with herod with soldiers and yet in the midst of, there are times where the conflict is right there and then boom right there he is hugging martha and mary because their brother lazarus has died He's in conflict with the Pharisees, and there's the woman who's brought in front of him who has been caught in adultery, and what do you see? Again, you see compassion. He's in conflict and being hounded by the Pharisees all over Israel, and yet there he is with the children, taking the children, putting them on his knee. And by the way, I'll say this to you about children. Jesus had a very loving Joyful disposition, because there ain't no way kids come to somebody who's miserable. You ever see that? Kids, a miserable they kids run from them. But you go in and you're smiling at the kids. You're warm. That's that's what Jesus did. He's really busy. He's fighting the battle. He's uh, he's going into Jerusalem, and there's a widow who had lost her only son, the widow of Nain. What does he do? He stops and he raises the boy from the dead. He's heading off to, to heal, or to raise Jairus' daughter. What happens? There's a woman who's been bleeding. He stops and he heals her. You see the tenderness when he raised up Jairus' daughter, right? I love the saying, he takes the little girl by the hand. Talitha Kumi. he says, little lamb, rise up. And she rises up, and she's alive, and her parents are in awe. The three apostles with him are in awe. And then what does he say? He says, give her something to eat. Just a little, little word of compassion. He's intense, and he's on his way up to Jerusalem. The apostles are kind of freaking out because all of a sudden, now his disposition has changed. Now, Now he's got his game face on. He set his face like flint, it says in Isaiah. He's moving up now. This is now he's getting ready to die, to take the sins of the world upon himself. And on his way up in Jericho, there are these two blind guys. One is named Bartimaeus. And they're screaming, please, Jesus, Jesus, heal me. The apostles say, please shut up. He's really busy right now. He's got a mission that he's on. And he just keeps screaming. They just keep screaming. And what does Jesus do? He takes time to heal them and while he's hanging on the cross taking the sins of the world upon himself his body is torn it's pierced it's broken he's in massive pain there's this pain that's greater than anything we could ever imagine this separation that occurs between he and the father and there's john and his mother mary at the foot of the cross what does he say Even there, he's still still concerned about others. (laughs) Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Why? Because up until that time, Mary's children were unbelievers. She had other children with Joseph, and they were unbelievers. So now he takes Mary and puts her with John, who is a believer. He puts her in his family. And he looks after her. All right, last, last point. He came in judgment. So there's the story of the fig tree. Have you ever, have you ever studied the story of the fig tree? It's a little confusing. And it, listen to what it says in, in Mark, because you have what Jesus does, and then you have interpretation. Mark 11, 12 to 14. Now that day when they had um, come out from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves... He went to see if perhaps he would find something on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And in response, Jesus said, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. And then it says in verse 20, Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up, and from its roots he cursed it. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Kind of cruel to a fig tree. (laughs) Even though the figs, it wasn't in season. Now, I just want to give you you a little agricultural lesson. Um, There there were three seasons of figs in Israel. So, like, we, we usually get one season of fruit, they get three. So, figs will grow three different times of the year. And what happens, what's interesting, the figs usually appear before the leaves. So this, this would have been one of the early seasons for figs. But the leaves, okay, come after the figs. So when he saw the leaves, you assume, right, that there would be figs on the tree. But there are no figs. There's no fruit. So he curses the fig tree. What is the fig tree symbolic of? Israel, people, people. Yes, Israel. See, see, Israel. They had leaves. They they had this appearance of life, but they had no figs. They had no fruit. Is, Israel was. They were. They were all religious, right? They were. They were. They were religious, but they didn't have a relationship with God. They had rituals, but no righteousness. They had laws, but they didn't have love. They had service, but they didn't have surrender to the Lord. And understand this again. Look at me. The Christian life. You know, simplify this. You're here. Maybe you're not aware of, of you know, Christian, you're getting exposed to Christianity. Today. The Christian life is one simple thing, right? What is it, folks? It is a surrender. It is a surrender to the one who made you, your maker, who knit you together in your mommy's womb, who's been trying to draw you to himself for the last years of your life, who died on the cross for you and was raised from dead? Who, who has ever done something like that for you, to save you? And the human response is a, a response of faith. It's, it's a surrender to him. So, so Israel, again, they had, they had all the religious trimmings, You'd go there and say, Well, these people are really have you ever meet people like that? Damn, these people are religious. Literally, damn. <laughs> they are so religious. Man, they got the rules and the regulations. They're legalists. But they don't have a relationship with God. They don't have a relationship with Him. And that's the truth throughout the ages. That's the truth again in the Old Testament, that's the truth in the New Testament. No fruit. You see, he expected Israel to have fruit, and he expects us to be fruity. (laughs) Look at at John chapter 15, verse 8. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Notice, they bear fruit, they bear more fruit. You are already clean because the word which I have spoken to you abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Do you notice that? We are to bear fruit, more fruit. Nelly. Mucho fruit. (laughs) If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. We are to bear fruit. What is fruit? I love fruit. I'm a very fruity guy. I love fruit. I eat like eight servings of fruit a day, and that's not including the vegetables. I'm like um, I guess you call me a fruit freak, and um, I'm so fruity. I'm so fruity. I'm so fruity and witty and gay, gay. When gay didn't mean what it means today. Understand that? My wife knows. You ever see that scene with Jack Nicholson? I love that scene. All right, when, I, when I'm, just, I'm feeling a little down I just watch that scene man and they just make me laugh <laughs> the guy pulls up next to him and he's yelling at him what does he say to him shut your pipe right I mean if you come from New York you understand that but fruit what is fruit what is spiritual fruit so most of us immediately think of Galatians right Galatians 5 the fruit of the spirit right the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control that's the fruit of a Christian character, Christ-like character. In Romans 1.13, it talks about the fruit of ministry. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. That's the, the fruit of ministry. I hope and I pray today that I would have some fruit amongst you, the fruit of ministry, the worship team up here, right? They want to produce fruit in you, the fruit of ministry, the Sunday school teachers with your children, the nursery workers, the people producing the the TV ministry and all these things that are going out today, that it would produce fruit amongst those who are going to participate in it. Hebrews 13, 15 says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. The fruit of praise, the fruit of thanksgiving, the fruit that comes from our lips. Hey, listen to things that come out of people's mouths today. They speak words of death instead of words of life. I mean, it is just bad fruit. It's rotten fruit. It's stinking fruit. Instead of being a fruit that builds up and edifies people. Philippians one eleven says, Be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruit of righteousness, the fruit of living right, the fruit of being right with God, the fruit of walking on the straight and narrow, being fruitful in our relationships with other people. Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. The fruit of winning souls. Leading people to Jesus. I hope I may have some fruit here today. Matthew 7.15-16 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? That is the fruit of sound doctrine. That is the, the fruit of, of true biblical doctrine. False prophets, false teachers teach what is false. They deceive. But the the, the fruit of being a, a true Bible teacher and teaching the word of God, not, not the traditions of men or things that people use, again, to manipulate people. And the last is walk in the manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, the fruit of of good works. We are called to be fruitful. Fruit Fruit is the manifestation of a person who is truly saved, who truly has a relationship with Jesus and has the Spirit of God. They are going to produce fruit, much fruit, abundant fruit in their life. God didn't create us to be fruitless, folks. He created us to be fruitful to be fruitful in all these different areas. So he came to produce fruit. So our application in conclusion here, again, he came to make us fruitful. He came to produce a fruit in us that would last forever, an eternal fruit a fruit of character, a fruit of righteousness, a fruit of ministry, a fruit of winning souls. Those are, are, are fruits that will, will last forever. See, he's, he said, without me, you can do nothing. Boy, when I heard that, I'm like, without you, I can do nothing. Right? I'm in business. I made money. Without you, I, I can do nothing. Nothing that will last forever. In the fitness business, I made a lot of fat people skinny. And I made a lot of weak people strong. Really strong, professional athletes, NFL football players, baseball players, hockey players, high school, college, professional players. I made people strong. But that will never last forever. Leading people to Christ, the fruit of a Christ-like character, the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of good works, that lasts forever. He came in kindness he came with, with compassion. He came, he came to heal the brokenhearted. He, he came to heal broken minds. He came to heal people who had broken spirits. And He's here today to do that in your life. He, he comes in kindness and compassion to heal. He came in fury. He comes to clean out the temple. And he hates hypocrisy. I've experienced that in my life. I've experienced Jesus hey, I've I've experienced Jesus in my soul with a quart of whips flipping over my tables. He 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 can be rough to the point because he loves us so much. wonder when those things are going on in your life and, hey, it's just not going the way that I would like and there's problems and maybe financial problems and relational problems and there's problems in the ministry. You know, that could be God disciplining you. And he will do that. This is a temple, right? This is his temple. And if it's filled with things, filthy things hypocrisy, he's going to go in there and he's going to start remodeling your temple. <laughs> and that could hurt a little. He comes in tears and he weeps over the soul that resists him, over the soul that rejects him, over the soul that rebels against him because he can see, hey, this is where your life is going. Maybe, maybe in this life, and maybe in the next life, this is where it's going. And he's grieving. He's grieving. And he comes in humility, gently riding on a donkey, the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sins of the world. If you haven't opened your heart, and folks, you have a door on your heart. You have a door. You can keep it shut. He isn't going to barge in. Why doesn't God just save everybody? Why, why doesn't God just... just, just do, be, because he's given people freedom and in his love. Imagine you're in a relationship with somebody and you're trying to love them and they're resisting you and you just want to love them and you want them to, to live with you and you want to just bless them and you want them to, to be in your life but they're resisting you and they're running off so you tie a chain to their leg and you put it tied to the bed so they could sleep next to you at night. Is that love? That's not. So people are free to resist and to reject and to rebel. But you have a door and you have to open it. He comes and he knocks on the door, right? If anyone hears my voice... And opens the door. I will come in and he says, I will eat with them. I will have fellowship. I will have a relationship with you. But you got to open the door for him to come in. He wants to come in in his humility. He wants to come in riding gently on a donkey. He wants to come in in love and be the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. But you have to open your heart. If you don't let him in in this lifetime, And I'll say this to you. I know right now he's passing right in front of some of your lives. He's knocking right at the door of your heart right now. Right on it. And you keep the door shut. Then maybe one day you will meet him as the lion. And that will be incredibly unpleasant for an eternity. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to come into your life. You have to open your heart to do that. As um, they say in tennis, and I've never played tennis, but the ball's in your court. It's your decision. And that decision is the decision that will determine your destiny. I hope today you'll make that decision and ask Jesus to come into your heart. Be the Lord of your life and your Savior. Would you all bow your heads with me? Our Lord, we we thank you, Lord God. We thank you, Lord God, for Palm Sunday, and we thank you, Lord God, for this great, this great word of how you entered into Jerusalem on a donkey and how you came, Lord, in humility how you came with such kindness, as you came to produce fruit, but also, Lord, you came with a fury. You came to heal, but you came to stir people up. I just pray, Lord God, today, as as we just close in prayer right now, for those who open their hearts to you, and they're doing it, that, Jesus, you would just enter in. Forgive them of all their sins. Ask him for that forgiveness. Put your faith in him. That he is the Lord. That he is the Savior. And receive his salvation. And Begin this new day, this new life with him. That will go on forever and ever. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And I want to ask you all to stand with me. You know what I want to do this as we close. The altars, we'll open the altars for prayer if you'd like to come forward. Pastor Sam, Pastor Sam is right here. And um, if you prayed today, maybe you prayed for the first time, maybe you prayed for the tenth time, maybe you prayed for the first time to take Jesus into your life. Maybe today you rededicated your life to Jesus. He's here. He's got. He's, he'll be right over here. He's got Bibles. Come up and talk with him and pray with him. Let him give you some some very. When when I accepted Jesus, um, it was through a book. But the, the the advice was after I prayed to take Jesus into my heart. Folks, I was an atheist who was. Converted in a moment to Jesus. That's how powerful it can be. But when I did that, the book said um, you need to read the Bible every day. You need to pray, and explained how to pray because I thought it was always formal prayer. And then it talked about plugging into a church where the Word of God is being preached. And it gave some other. That's what Sam will do with you. He'll give you some instruction so you really get off, you know, on the right foot. So um, Pastor Sam is there, and I do really encourage you. Just put away your fears. Put away your egos. You need to talk with him today. Come up and talk with him. This will be a life-transforming moment for you. Okay? God bless you all. Thank you, Pastor Frank. Yes, the altars are open, and Pastor Sam is over there. For any of those of you who have chosen to surrender your heart to the Lord, just want to talk to somebody. If you want to pray at the altars, they're open. So. Pray alone or even with somebody, some of uh, the deacons will come forward for you. As you leave here today, remember to take your palms. If, again, you'd like the Passion Week, you have it outside at the table and here. Meditate on uh, what the Lord did for you on Passion Week and Holy Week. And may God bless you all. May He bless you all. May the peace of Jesus. You know, peace, it's not just this. It's shalom. I pray this for the church and every one of you every day. It's the shalom of God, its well-being, of body, of soul, of spirit, relationships abundance, the work of your hands. May the peace and shalom of Jesus go with you all and be with you all on this holy week. Your marriages, your children, the work that you do with your hands, all things. May God go with you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.